Are we ready in Kentucky? We are. Of we, course we are. We all live here now. Yeah. <laughs> the three of us are at the table. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back, everybody. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> You're here for another episode of the Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. I'm Jonathan. And you are listening to uh, the eighth episode of the ninth season, which is to say this is the recapitulation of the road to revisions. Let's is this recapitulate? The, yeah, let's recapitulate it. Let's summarize it. We're gonna, let's process it and throw it right back in their faces. Did gonna, we capitulate one time? At least we capitulated on the first one. Okay. Yeah, with with Karen. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Come back around, and we're going to recapitulate this uh, long form discussion that we've been having about how Howard has been revised, either by himself or by contemporaries or by progenitors. Right? Is that fair to say? I think like, that's fair to say. Across sort of multiple multiple lines, how has Howard specifically and Sword and Sorcery and pulp weird fiction authors more broadly, like how has their material been uh, not refurbished, but sort of reworked and mm-hmm. expanded, and how has that sort of made its way into the current the current world? One thing we wrote on the initial blog post outlining the season was that we wanted to learn more about Howard's writing process via his own uh, revisions to his own works and how others have revised his works and added to them. And so I think it'll be interesting to dig into that question as we move through the night. Yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good point. I I think a couple of the things that you sort of brought to the table, Josh, whenever you were bouncing some, some messages to to John and I, I think they're like fodder for, for some digging. There is a Chromecast tweet thread. Or text thread, text that, we, thread. That, yeah. that we have, right? Yeah. If people could only see it, yeah. they would understand the inner workings of it's, our minds. It's it's periodic, uh, brilliant observations about the literature we're reading, yeah. and then uh, animated gifts of uh, like Ewan McGregor. Yeah, Ewan McGregor, or or a picture of a box with my welcome mat on top of it. That is incredible. That, that was pretty bad today. Yeah. Can you share what was in that box? Uh, it's our patio furniture. Oh, okay. So they delivered our patio furniture and they put the welcome mat on top of the box as if it was like poof gone. <laughs> and this, this, this patio furniture box was legit the size of like, it was bigger than a mini fridge. Oh, it it's like, like four feet tall. The yeah. boxes. Yeah. <laughs> minimum four feet tall. It was perfect. It was, yeah. It would be like, a, I don't know, Andre the Giant with like a, a lampshade, like, like a like a twin sized or a double sized bed sheet, like uh, uh, yeah. draped over, and you see one of those little tiki umbrellas <laughs> over the top. Mm-hmm. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a funny thread, is what we're saying. That's what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Loads of jokes. Laugh a minute. That's us. That's, a, that's, that's us. Fuck rah. Rah. I tell you, this is what happens when I drive when I drive the bus. You're, you're driving. I'm steering the boat. Um, it's a great bus. It's a great boat. It's a great <laughs> John, what are you drinking? Uh, I brought Elijah Craig tonight to the to the party. Yes, Josh, what are you drinking? Um, I'm having some Elijah Craig right now, but I brought the uh, Evan Williams uh, Black Label. Nice. Josh and I were discussing that Elijah Craig. The bottle comes with this little rubber label that says he's the father of bourbon. I think that's contentious. Yeah, yep. you you might say the same thing about Evan Williams. Yeah. Yep. So that's why we're drinking the two of them tonight to compare (laughs) who had a better idea. And they're they're both from the same company, which is funny. Which is, yeah, that's the best part. (laughs) That's the way to do it if you're going to do it. They're playing all sides. I brought uh, a handful of cans of Clarbrune seltzer water. 
courtesy of the Costco's. Nice. Uh, yep, that's what that's that that's the seven dollar thirty packs you get at Costco's. Uh, so I brought the the sparkling the sparkling waters to accompany the bourbons. Clar Brune is a registered trademark of Whizpack. Whizpack. Uh, Whizpack is not a great name. <laughs> I think it's a great name. <laughs> Buying your Whizpack in bulk. I got my Whizpack. That's econo- That's smart. That's smart economics. <laughs> right on. So we uh we've got a, a touch of bourbon and some 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 sparkling refreshments to keep us hydrated. Let's go ahead and move it over to the one thing. All right, all right. So I like this McConaughey thing you got going. All right, on. All it's right. just it's just me being. We should have had wild turkey. Me being me. Do that. <laughs> it's just me being me. Hey man, all be a lot cooler all day. If you did. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just channeling the cool tonight. I guess you totally are. I agree. Not uh, not so you much. You are. You always do. <laughs> By the end of the night, you're going to be telling us about how time is a flat circle. That, I, I can probably get into that here in about 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So one things, uh, since we're all sitting at the same table these days, new executive decision. Psh, how about whoever's leading off the one thing? We just move counter, like we move clockwise. Okay. okay. What do you think about that? I love it. Because that way it keeps whoever's the driver Wait, driving. So, so, it's so, you, so you, you just drew a flat circle so. in the air. <laughs> yes. And talk about time. <laughs> it's that meme where it shows all the synapses going, uh-huh. and the last one is mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you want me to go? I love you. when we do okay. visual yes. approximation or like uh, verbal approximations of a visual meme. Yep. That's right. Yeah, because it's going to end back at me, and then I'll be able to field field like foster discussion into the content of the the main the so main Joshua show. Joshua goes mm-hmm. first, so I'm going first. Okay. And my one thing is a book written by Kentucky author Chris Offit who is the son of Andrew J. Offit, who we discussed on the last episode of the podcast. And the book is called My Father, the Pornographer. And the the it's a memoir of uh, Chris Offit's childhood, his relationship with his father, which um, was rocky at times. Um, but there's also, uh, you, can, you can sort of see the love that he had for his dad. Um, and uh, he presents some examples of uh his dad sort of opening up um to him as well and it, it's it's really uh a kind of a, a sad and also bittersweet bittersweet um memoir detailing uh, a, a rough father-son relationship um so uh i highly recommend it and the other thing that i really love about it is uh chris Offit describes growing up in Eastern Kentucky mm. in a way that is, you know, he's 24 years older than, than we are. Uh, but his experience was not dramatically different than my experience <laughs> growing up there. Like, right. It, it just hasn't changed all that much. Um, so if, uh, if you all are interested at all in learning more about Andrew J. Offit, uh, learning about growing up, as a creative person in the hills of Eastern Kentucky, give, give that book a shot. It's, it's well worth it. I like the sound of the father son dynamic too. I, I think we could all goodbye some of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So is it written in the, the fashion of like from the present looking towards the past or like, how is it told? It's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, 
like fictional account. It's, no. a, it's an objective sort of like, mm-hmm. here's what I experienced. Yeah. It, it kind of, the fulcrum of the book is his father's uh, funeral and the events immediately following it. And so cleaning out the house, doing the, uh, the requisite end of life kind of right. things that you do, you, you know, you go through all of the things and what do you keep and, you know, how do you, how do you deal with, all of the things that uh, are built up during a, a life. Um, and then how do you deal also with learning secrets about your uh, parents that you had indications of, you kind of knew, mm-hmm. but you maybe didn't know the severity of it. You didn't know the extent of it. And so to, to not be vague, uh, everyone knew that Andrew J. Offit wrote erotica uh, but the extent to which he wrote erotica was kind of hazy and you get a sense of the, the mountainous scope of his erotica output, which, which far dwarfs his science fiction and fantasy output. Okay. And, and so, uh, we made the mention that Andrew J. Offit wrote under various pen names. Uh, one of those was Turk winter. And the other was John Cleave. And I think most of his output that wasn't sci-fi was under John Cleave. And uh, the question is raised by the book, uh, is is this man Andrew Offit or is he John Cleave? Like, it, it's it's a real Clark Kent versus Superman argument from the end of Kill Bill Volume 2. Mm-hmm. Like, who who is the real person and, and who is the mask? Um, it's It's pretty fascinating. And so, to have it discussed by a son would be even better. So yeah, that yeah, sounds pretty good. It's great. Yeah. Um, so I'm really excited to check out some more of Chris Offit's work. Um, he has a, uh, a novel set in the Hills called country dark that I'm interested in checking out. And there's another one called Kentucky straight. That is a collection of short stories all set in the Hills. So, um, I may have found a new favorite Kentucky writer. <laughs> nice man. Yeah. I, I hear future one things for you. Yeah, maybe. Hopefully I look forward to checking those out. Yeah. Cool. John. So mine has a bit of a meandering story and I hope that's okay. Will you indulge me? Please. We don't. I will. I will indulge. Okay. Every, little, every <laughs> little bit. So when I was a kid, I had this weird thing where I liked the idea of inventing fictional football leagues or like basketball leagues. Mm-hmm. And I had these notepads that my grandparents got me and I would write everything out. Like I would write out the team names <laughs> where they were located. I would like draw cities. Yeah. I would draw a logo um i would come up with uniforms or helmets or whatever they needed like i really like doing i was into basketball at the time that i'm thinking about and i really like making the basketball jersey and shorts and i would even come up with like year by year statistics and uh champions and like storylines for this whole thing i never knew this about i was Josh. i was really you know that, i was Josh? really into this as a kid <laughs> um it was something that really i i like to indulge i came up with all kinds of crazy like the one that sticks with me the most is I came up with a basketball team called the Maine Lobsters. And so their shorts had these huge lobsters on each side that were each holding each of their claws was holding a basketball. And they were one of my favorite ones that I drew out. It was just something that I really liked doing. I always liked graphic design or whatever. So when you, uh, so when you were doing this, were you thinking about like the story arcs of like the various teams you were yes, coming absolutely. up with? Like yeah. it was all about like, like who would I want to win uh-huh. this league or why would I want this team to do good? Or why is this the evil team? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So as a small town, Indiana kid, 
the Indiana team that I would come up with would often be the heroic team. <laughs> right, And, right. like, the New York or New England team would be the bad one of, or whatever. Yeah, naturally. Right. Yes, naturally, of course. Um, so this was something I was really into. And then as I got older, I was really into learning about alternative sports leagues, like, that have popped up throughout history. And so we have the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. There was this league that I learned about called the USFL, and some of our listeners may have heard of it. It was kind of a 1980s phenomenon, and it was an upstart football league that featured football in the spring, which is very non-traditional. Football is supposed to be a fall sport, according to all metrics that we've come up with. But this league came together, and it was, by all accounts, fairly successful at what they set out to do. It was like a regional focus, so they had a collegiate draft that would be like every team had a region that they could draft from like a set amount of schools. So like Kentucky university of Kentucky might be part of the Pittsburgh Maulers region. And they would get first, they would get first dibs on anybody that was good graduating from university of Kentucky. Okay. If they wanted them. And when I learned about this, I would go, there's this website called the helmet project and you can go and look at every football helmet that's ever existed up until about 2017 or so. Like from the college level upwards? Or? Yeah, okay. uh, like even like lower college divisions. Like I think they go down to even D3. Okay. And you can see all these different things that have been come up with logos and, and helmets and everything. And when I first discovered that, I looked at the USFL and they had these weird, really weird helmets. There's one called, they were the Boston Breakers and then they were the New Orleans and then Portland Breakers. And I can show you guys a picture. It was the one that I liked the most. It's like this weird breaking wave on the side of the helmet and i thought it was it's very evocative of their name uh there were a couple of others that's really good the houston gamblers it's the letter g with the state of texas in the center okay so just lots of cool stuff and i was very captivated by this league and i wanted to read more about them there was a documentary called small potatoes that was part of 30 for 30 and with small potatoes you get to see the history of this league in about an hour And I wanted to know more. And I recently found that there's a book called Football for a Buck. The the Meteoric Rise and Bizarre Downfall of the USFL by Jeff Perlman. And I finished it in about two days because it was so enthralling to me. This is a story of a league that was a really good idea. They go through all of the history of like how it came together. And he tells it very evocatively. And all the different teams that come together, the different egos that pop up and then how they're successful for about a year and a half. It only lasted three years, this experiment, three or four years. Okay. And the very interesting part of the story is where all of a sudden a man named Donald J. Trump enters the story and he buys one of the teams, the New York or New Jersey generals and proceeds to like take over this league And it's very clear from the outset to some of the other owners that he is trying to force an issue with the NFL. If you've never read about some of Donald J. Trump's exploits with the NFL, he's tried to buy a team about three times. Uh, He tried to buy the Baltimore Colts. Oh, okay. He tried to buy, I want to say the Jets, but I won't swear to it. And then he tried to buy the Bills once as well. And they all three failed. And particularly they failed because a guy that used to be the commissioner of the NFL, Pete Rozelle, He hated Donald Trump, and he said, as long as I'm involved with the league or anybody in my family is, you'll never be an owner. And that set Trump off, and he decided to like try and stick it to the NFL by buying into the USFL and using his new team to 
force a lawsuit with the NFL. Juicy, dude. So, yeah. So, <laughs> it's a spring league. He convinces everybody to switch it to the fall, and they're going to sue the NFL in an antitrust lawsuit. So, the, the end of the story is that he gets this lawsuit set up, and they win. Like, the NFL has been proven at the federal court level to be a monopoly in history. Like, back in 1986, this happened. And the reason they're a monopoly is because they have these exclusive contracts with ABC and NBC and Fox and yada, yada. But uh, the story goes that everybody on the jury hated Donald Trump so much that they said that the USFL could win the lawsuit, but they only want a dollar. And it's a treble <laughs> lawsuit. So, like, whatever you win is tripled. They had sued for about $300 million. They were expecting to get a billion dollars out of this prob- out of this lawsuit. Or to force a merger where the NFL would have to invite the USFL teams in. That's what Donald Trump wanted. And so they won $3 and it killed the league because of what Donald Trump did. <laughs> so it's just this really interesting snippet of like four years in history where there was this upstart football league. They got three straight Heisman Trophy winners hmm. to join their league through various circumstances. And it was a really good idea. It actually is where the run-and-shoot offense really got started. They are the ones that came up with the two-point conversion. Hmm. They came up with instant replay for challenging certain calls on the field. Oh, boo. All these things <laughs> that have been adopted by the modern-day NFL. So it's a really cool little history. Jeff Perlman is a really evocative writer. That was a long story, but it was really, really That's awesome. It's beautiful. I think you should check it out. <laughs> I, I am so glad I tuned into like like football history cl- cast. This is the world and the the history behind this is awesome, man. It's it's really cool. There, so there's this one guy that owned a team called the Tampa Bay Bandits, and so at the same time that he owns this team, Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going, and they're like the worst franchise in the history of the NFL. Okay, like multiple one win seasons, and a lot of the teams in the USFL were successful because they would do these weird fan, uh, like reach out programs where they'd be like, Hey, one random lucky fan that comes to the game today, we're going to pay off your mortgage or you're going to win a 1984 Dodge Charger or whatever. Like they had all these cool programs and the bandits were kicking the Buccaneers butts in terms of attendance and just like fan outreach. And this guy was really the antithesis to Trump in this whole thing. And this isn't hopefully political or whatever, but like he was the guy that wanted it to stay spring football. He really didn't get along with Trump and his ideas. He saw what he was trying to do and didn't agree with it. And he ended up dying of brain cancer. And that's kind of like how Trump got to come in and take over. So it's just like lots of weird, weird things that happened Hmm. in terms of just people and human drama it's just a, it was a really cool story. Um, if you like sports at all, I would check it out. So is this a is this a new book or an older book or do you know it the, came the out in seventeen it? or eighteen? So it's, okay. it's relatively new. I got it when yeah, I no, signed no. up at the library over the weekend. Nice. <laughs> the, my my one thing inspired you. <laughs> Get your your Lexington Public Library. I did. Card. Yes, I went back in and, and signed back up. Uh, do you think that this story in some way inspired? Uh, Vince McMahon to create the XFL in the mid 2000s. I would say that there, there, there are some nuggets there of like putting it to the NFL, uh-huh. that kind of stuff. Cause it was a fall league as well. Was it not? Yeah. He, I, he started, he wanted to challenge the NFL. Mm-hmm. It was, it's a little different because this started out as 
not challenging the NFL, but saying like everybody loves football. Football has replaced baseball as the national pastime. People want to watch football any time of the year. We're going to do it in spring. And they were very successful, like not super successful, but they were just getting started. And it kind of got ruined by pushing the issue with the NFL. Uh, My favorite part is where they won $3. $3, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. It's a good book. So if you're interested in sports history, check it out. That that's, leads us to that's you. That's cool. That's very I, – I don't know, man. Like it seems like the, the stories and the sort of like social bit around it, like regardless of whether or not it's a sports story, you can get, get into it. Yeah. So it talks a lot about like – so do you know Herschel Walker at all? So Herschel Walker was a Heisman Trophy winner, went to the University of Georgia, one of the best running backs ever to play football. Okay. And he didn't want to play his senior year of college ball. He wanted to go pro. But the okay. NFL didn't allow juniors to enter the draft. And so there is some of that, like, you know, colleges take advantage of these young men and use okay. them in their prime. And the USFL offered an alternative. that They were like, yeah, come on, come play football. And they gave him a boatload of money to come, and he set – what is still the season record for rushing yards in a season. The only reason it doesn't really quite count is that their season was 18 games long, whereas the NFL now plays 16 games. used to be a little less even. Uh, but it, I don't think anybody could equal it, even if you gave an NFL, a modern NFL running back That's fascinating, yeah. dude. <laughs> so uh, he did that. Another, uh, Doug Flutie, he came in because he was 5'10", and nobody in the NFL wanted a 5'10 quarterback. And so... Donald Trump signed him up to play for the New Jersey Generals because he was the Flutie miracle, the, the Hail Flutie guy. He threw this pass that won him the Heisman Trophy, and he was the talk of the nation. So he was like a hot ticket item, and he wasn't going to make it in the NFL, so brought him into the Generals. Got a lot of press for the USFL. Just lots of cool human interest storylines like that. But then they contrast that with the rest of the guys who they were plumbers, and uh-huh. they and they had played right. football for Montana State Technical College, and they just happened to actually be kind of good, but they were never going to make it in the NFL. They were never right. going to get a shot, and the USFL gave them that. So check it out. Cool. Long story. All right. I'll keep mine short. Uh, my one thing is Blue Oyster Cult. I've been listening to a lot of the BOC here lately. Uh, I picked up Fire of Unknown Origin on vinyl for three days yet for, for, for three bucks yesterday. It's a big fine for me. I've been, nice. I've been, I'm a, I'm a tight wad with hunting for the records. Where'd you get it? Uh, at half price. Over no kidding. At, over at Hamburg on, on, on that side. Uh, for three bucks for three bucks. Wow. Three dollars. Like I think somebody just didn't know. Well, I think they, they were just like going fast with the, cause there were so many other things it, it, like that's, that that's a record at least here. In Lexington, we go for seven or eight bucks, and I've passed up on buying it at that price like a bunch, mm-hmm. uh, just because I'm a tight ass uh, <laughs> for no other reason than than that. Uh, and so I picked it up for three, and then I pl- and it's it's like it's a beautiful version. It's a ver- a beautiful copy. Plays through. Uh, oh yeah, like it's it's like brand spanking new. Uh, and it still has some good crackles in it, right? No, I mean it's pretty clean. Oh, yeah, but they're like good crackles, right? Yeah, I mean I'm fine with crackles, but it it is like a, a super duper clean, like a uh, copy of the record. So I was super excited, uh, and I'm only missing a couple others, and so I'm excited. And so I decided yesterday that I was gonna start up a, a complete Blue Oyster Cult playthrough, and so I'm about five records deep at this point. Wow, and 
I don't know. I've got like a, like six more because I think I've got eleven of the BOC albums on vinyl. So I'm excited. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a good that's a good collection. It's it's fun. I mean, I I mean, I like I like the records anyway. But with Blue Oyster Cult, there's 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 cool levels to it with like a lot of the I don't know like the the liner notes and this the stuff that comes around with the with the albums. It's not like there's crazy crazy extra stuff to go to it, but uh, there's just little little things that on the record accentuate it, right? Like the, the back of the vinyl or the, you know, the sleeve has a little bit of infor- extra information that kind of adds to the story. If you kind of, and they have a mythos, a, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, a lot of that kind of thing, which I'm pretty nerdy about. So, so it's cool. Do you awesome. have a complete discography of anybody on vinyl? Mm-mm, no, I don't, but you will someday. I bet. Well, I might for, from my, for BOC, like, like, cause at this point they were a band that I was, I mean, it's one of those things where I was in high school, like in the '90s. I I totally like got into Zeppelin, and I mean other other bands of that era and that that ilk. But I like totally dismissed Blue Oyster Cult as you know, Don't Fear the Reaper and Godzilla. <laughs> and then I got to college and started listening to to things post like post graduating with master's degrees and just went down the rabbit hole. And there's so much goodness there. Like blue oyster cult is a phenomenal band. And at this point I only lack a couple studio albums of having the whole discography. Like they're probably the band that I'm closest to. I've got like the whole, like, uh, you know, Aussie on vocal Sabbath, Mm. Sabbath run, or maybe no, actually no. So I need technical ecstasy there. So, but I've got like the first like six or seven of the the Sabbath stuff. Uh, but like those, whenever I got into vinyl, I don't know, back in like twenty eleven or whatever. My my rules were one, I wasn't going to buy anything that I already had, and two, I wasn't going to buy anything like new. And I've kind of kind of broke some of those rules, but only when I've got like an Amazon gift card. <laughs> like the basically, <laughs> the, if I if I get a gift card for Christmas, I can I can justify buying like a reissue. Uh, but but otherwise, I want to pick up just stuff that I haven't heard. And so right. for Blue Oyster Cult, it was like it was vistas of stuff that I never even knew was out there. Man, like I don't know. Listen to like veterans of the psychic wars <laughs> i was about to say don't and, they have a, a moorcock connection yeah, yeah. Did, and, did and michael so, moorcock write that song uh so yeah and so he wrote like on mirrors there's a song called there's a song called black blade on cultosaurus erectus <laughs> which is just ridiculous to say <laughs> uh and then he wrote i think the sun jester on on mirrors maybe but yeah so so moorcock was like buddies with the van the band uh there's all there's cool there's cool like levels of interaction between boc and and weird fiction and sword and sorcery and and the pulps let's do the math like uh moorcock is connected to fritz Liber, right Liber corresponded with lovecraft and Mm -hmm. lovecraft corresponded famously with howard robert e howard so i mean the and and so bouchard uh, and Sandy Perlman. So Sandy Perlman is the famous uh, producer of Blue Oyster Cult. And Sandy Perlman is actually the guy that, that lent the title Blue Oyster Cult to the band. So so Sandy Perlman had a variety of writings, like weird fiction writings that he did. Awesome. Uh, the Soft Doctrines of Imaginos. Uh, and, and so Blue Oyster Cult was the name this mythical like Lovecrafty and sort of name that's in there. And that's where huh. like what soft white underbelly, which was the original BOC name 
that's where they take it and sort of became Blue Oyster Cult. But if you listen uh, to Secret Treaties or more specifically Imaginos, there's an entire like Lovecraftian mythos that's there that's spelled out. There's there's deep ones. There's all kinds of crazy crazy stuff there with like Lovecraftian iconography. Like I think it's cool that there's the clear Lovecraft connection, specifically with that Imaginos album, which is kind of a latter latter day love uh, uh, blue oyster cult thing that a lot of people even dismiss as being like an actual release by the band. It was more of like a love child for for Al Bruchard and and, and Sandy Perlman. So Br- Bruchard was the, the the drummer, and Sandy Perlman was the long standing producer who wrote a lot of the materials that became lyrics. So that's that's one thing. But then you mentioned the the Lovecraft material, or I'm sorry, the the uh, Moorcock materials. That's just a whole cloth found through multiple multiple albums, and I mean, there's there's stuff on those first few albums that are weird fictional sword and sorcery, like like Wings Wetted Down and uh, the, the the Archer song that closes out uh, the second the the second album, Tyranny and Mutilation. Like there's there's all kinds of just crazy stuff that would fall right in line with like what Carl Edward Wagner wrote with Kane and just, just weirdness. So beyond talking about Lovecraft and Moorcock, there's even more BOC connections to the sword and sorcery, but those are the closest connections with him and like the weird fiction, mm-hmm. but it's BOC is the, the bee's knees. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I got all passionate about oh, Blue Oyster Cult you there. Just, you were just gesticulating. <laughs> I was just going. <laughs> I think that was a great one thing. It was, that was a good session. Right on. Put them all together. Stir them up. Call it. One thing. All right, guys. We did that because we don't have a story to talk about. <laughs> no. We're just... We we're don't. Just, yeah, you're right. We're just shooting from the hip. We're recapitulating. We're <laughs> to, to recapitulate our... Capitulation. Yeah. We here are going to uh, have a little bit of a retrospective about our road of revisions, which again is uh, the the long discussion that we've had about the revisions of Howard materials, either by Howard himself or Howard contemporaries or Howard descendants. Mm-hmm. Is that a good way to start us out? Yeah, I think so. For sure. So you could look at this season and the stories that we discussed uh, and categorize the stories in the following dichotomy. One, as as Luke just mentioned, Howard revising Howard. Right. So those stories are uh, by this Axi rule in the Phoenix on the sword. Then the Clontarf cycle. So um, uh, I have the Cairn on the headland, which which yeah. is what it, Clontarf, the Grey God passes and the Cairn on the headland. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then uh, we have the fire of Astarbanipal, mm-hmm. which uh, initially was an adventure story that became kind of a weird fiction tale. And then you could look at the uh, posthumous collaborations. So we have the God in the Bowl, which was unfinished by Howard, but finished by Elsprague de Cant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Striking of the Gong, which was finished by Lynn Carter. Right. Uh, Necked Simmerket, which was finished by Andrew J. Offit. Um, and so, and then we have. Um, the the two tales, um, the the Conan sta- the Conan story, the Black Stranger, which became Swords of the Red Brotherhood, which then was transformed by Elspreg de Camp into 
the treasure of Tranicus. Tranicus. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so that one is kind of an outlier and, and a weird one. Maybe we can talk about it a, as its own kind of category. Uh, cause it kind of fits it, it, it bridges the gap between the two categories there. Um, and so I wanted to start this discussion, I guess, by talking about Howard revising Howard. What jumps out at you guys in terms of reading this, this initial versions, the initial drafts of these stories, and then the, the drafts that are ultimately published? So just off the cuff, I guess one of the things that's occurring to me, and maybe I mentioned this with the fire of Azurbanipal explicitly, but I'm if not then it was like an implicit sort of thinking i like howard when he goes weird so so the the revisions where he takes the mundane and and makes it a little bit weird or horrific i like that uh yeah i th- i think that's the the message for me with like what we read this season yeah, it feels like that was when he started to get some traction with some of these right like i would say i like the non-weird version of Spears mm-hmm. of Quantarf, as I said in that episode. But it's a, it's apparent to me why Weird Tales of all publishing outlets is going to want something a little stranger than a historical story featuring weird, weird-ass Vikings and stuff. Like, mm-hmm. they want some... They want Odin trapped by Holly, and <laughs> they want him coming out and being a Cthulhu monster. Like, that, that's going to sell a little bit better. Yeah. That one actually appeared in Strange Tales, which was Sorry. a Weird Tales, yeah. like, competitor. Right. Oh, yeah, but, right. But it, it uh, was publishing the same sort of materials. Right. It even has a similar name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think that it's pretty apparent that Howard wrote these initial drafts uh, kind of as experiments. Yeah. Right. And they're they're more or less kind of mundane adventure or philosophical adventure in the case of the coal thing. Um, And he knew that he could publish in weird tales and he knew the formula like he knew what Farnsworth Wright was looking for. But do you think those those early versions then maybe hewed closer to his heart like he what he really wanted to put out? I mean, he wanted to publish in Argosy, right? Which yeah. is more of a straight adventure kind of thing. Right. So maybe he'd give that a shot. And then when it didn't work, he'd use his magic formula to get Farnsworth. Maybe. Um, it's it's interesting because uh, when you think about these different pulp magazines, Weird Tales is kind of the, the odd duck. Because it is publishing horror and fantasy and, and stuff like that. But it's getting people who are writing... Uh, in a more literary style. And so there is a recent uh, episode of um, Plot Points podcast uh, that uh, Jason Ray Carney was a guest on. And he talks about the the literary aspects of Weird Tales. And I, I wonder if Howard wasn't just kind of dipping his toes into these other markets and trying to do some adventure stuff, which in his correspondence with Lovecraft, he kind of bills himself as uh, an adventure writer. Like I write, I write historical adventure tales. Um, but he knew that he could throw a monster in, right? And and uh, he knew the the literary themes that would trigger a sale with Farnsworth, which isn't a trivialization 
of that. I no, no, think. no. I don't think so either. But he's he's a working man. You're right. Well, yeah, he's paying the bills. With so him. so to that point too, Howard, in his own words, to Lovecraft, there. So within the the Dark Man Journal, like the volume nine one, like uh, Karen Kahodek hasn't. Uh, her sort of sister to a previous article, which I haven't read, but it, the the article here is called The Outside Scholar, Robert E. Howard, H.P. Lovecraft, and Scholarly Identity Part 2, A Complex and Baffling Question. She takes a deep dive into the correspondence between those two dudes that it initially starts as a uh, barbarism versus civilization argument, but descends into Howard like bristling up and arguing that he is writing as a as a workaday dude, mm-hmm. just make like looking to make a buck, and Lovecraft getting very lofty with his arguments and saying, you know, artist, 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 and Howard himself very much liked to argue that at points he was just looking to get paid, right? But on the basis of the quality of his writing, like Lovecraft would say in those exchanges, like, no, like, <laughs> clearly, you something clearly. To say. yeah, like you have something to say and you're an artist, but, uh, like that sort of salty exchange, which develops and then kind of like reconciles, uh, through their letters back and forth really does paint the picture that, that Howard was willing to revise himself to make the cell, but, I guess to me, the really interesting question is, is that pure, like, I don't know, pure is the right term, but at least within some of the stories that we've read where it become it starts historical and then it gets a little bit weird to make the sell to, to weird tales mm-hmm. is the pure Howard, the, the less weird option or, or what? Like to me, that's, that's a pretty that's cool, like yeah. valid question. And I don't know, like I, <laughs> I, I think that the weird adds levels of interpretation to mm-hmm. these stories, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of why why I like them. I like I like the fact that they're a little bit spooky too. I think you can do the historical story spooky, but I think that the extra layers of like flavor that that Howard adds on to the the, the weirdified tales, like that's that's why I like them. And I think it's it's interesting to talk about what you were talking about between him and Lovecraft too, because it doesn't take anybody to, to slap a monster into a Viking versus Irish people story and be like, yeah, now it's weird. Right. But the way that he could weave something like that in there, yeah. that is artistry. Like he wrote really good stories. He didn't just say, eh, yeah, now he's a monster. The fact, <laughs> the, the fact that, that Odin becomes right. like uh, a great old one is, like that is uh that's the artistic well, ability. Yeah, I don't want to say transcendent, but that's something that like that Lovecraft didn't necessarily allude to, right? To like take a named entity and sort of sort of make that that connection. Like that's that's the that's the cool next level and that's the, that is the the sophistication that's hardwired into it. I think that's why maybe the three of us even like him is like he clearly is he's a he's a hard worker. Like he's a blue collar writer. Yep. And I think he wrote some of these versions of his stories because he wanted to break into Argosy. We've talked before about he's not getting paid very fr- regularly by Farnsworth, right? Uh, eventually, eventually, yeah. I'm not sure 
Exactly. I, I know that like in 35, 36, Farnsworth Ride is, is kind of stiffing a lot of people right. and Howard specifically. And when we did the boxing season, I think that that was a lucrative avenue for him because he got paid upon acceptance, right. not upon publication. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there are reasons to diversify and to try and publish these other versions of these stories. Maybe they don't represent his inner heart, but maybe they represent attempts at breaking into new markets. But I do think that maybe they represent something truer to what he wanted to talk about, the barbarism versus civilization. And then he could weave that into a good monster story as well if he needed to. Yeah. So so that gets me into when, when you say uh, that he, he had this artistry, um, that gets us into talking about the other prong in this dichotomy, and that is the posthumous collections. <laughs> so let's, let's start this discussion with the following quote. So, in 1950, Gnome Press issued a hardback version of The Hour of the Dragon, and the book was titled Conan the Conqueror. And the intro to that book was written by a guy named John D. Clark. And he says, in this introduction, don't look for hidden philosophical meanings or intellectual puzzles in these yarns. They aren't there, referring to Howard's stories in the introduction to this this book. Mm-hmm. So, my hypothesis here is that um, if you look at the attitudes of this guy and of Elsbreg de Camp and Lynn Carter, who often said very disparaging things about Howard right after saying something almost approximating nice, right? <laughs> uh, they're, and then they go and write some uh, posthumous collaboration, some, some take some Howard story and try to turn it into something else. Um, and they're, they're not as effective. Right. So clearly something is up with John D. Clark's statement. (laughs) What, what is going on here? Like, why is it that even, even in our discussions of the, uh, the Carter and the DeCamp revisions, we've said we didn't necessarily like this quite as much. I, I would argue Rusty hit it on the head in the episode that he guest starred in, which is, you know, Lynn Carter, he had the passion and he liked Howard, but he didn't have the artistry. Elsprague had the artistry probably, but he didn't have the thunder in his blood. Like they're not Robert E. Howard. They're not the same person. They can't come at these stories in the same way. Would you feel that that's fair? Uh, I think at least with the Lynn Carter episode that we talked about the striking of the gong i was on the record saying that i thought that the 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 carter version versus the original were equivocal and i mean i i i stand by that i think i think lynn carter and DeCamp for their faults had the good intentions and i think both of those dudes had uh like they're able to write i think both of them wrote horror stories absent of posthumous collaborations with Howard, but I think that they did write uh, worthwhile materials nonetheless. And and so I guess what I'm saying is uh, that the posthumous collaborations aren't necessarily worse. And it's never going to be easy, though, to do yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that that's always a gambit to fail. Like, if you're going to do a posthumous collaboration with an author that you look up to or that people look up to, you're, yeah. you're taking a risk. I mean, I think, and two, we got into this with our talks with Mark Finn, like, the, 
the campion stuff, like the problems there are the camp throwing Howard under the bus with Dark Valley Destinies, right? Like that kind of stuff. And that's not necessarily apparent with uh, Lynn Carter. Am I wrong? I, like, I, wouldn't, like, I wouldn't say that. You know, oh, okay. you know, as a blanket statement, I wouldn't okay. say that Lynn Carter never wrote anything disparaging about Robert E. Howard. Uh, it, right. Yep. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that's a good point. But I think DeCamp has the blacker stain on on his his soul for okay, the I, things that he wrote agree. within yeah. that book. Uh, and, and revisiting, like if we were to listen to our, our, our conversation about Lynn Carter and striking of the gong too, like, like there may have been some things in the, the, the introduction. Cause I do recall that I talked about like an intro by Lynn Carter, uh, there, but it seems like, like you hit the nail on the head, John, with your, your statement of like, uh, Carter had sort of the intentionality and the passion and DeCamp had the, the sort of like artistry and, and the, the ability, but none of them had the blood and the thunder. I think, I think that's, I think that's right on. Uh, I think that with unfinished stories by Howard, like these guys, didn't do all wrong. And I think that there's that that we're all the better for having some of the, the, the adaptations that we do. Right. There's a shot there. There's a potential for there to be something interesting. I just think it's really hard with Howard. I would, I mean, you said something about what Clark is his last name, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, you're not going to find any deep thought here. Yada, yada. Like I would push back against that. Obviously very vehemently. We have a podcast about it, but yeah, but it, Go ahead. Well, Howard had something to say. Like he was notorious selfly, uh, self-deprecator. He didn't think much of himself, seemingly, right. or at least put on that show. And he he's not going to say, "Oh, you know, I I am out there spewing philosophical debates about barbarism versus civilization." But he very clearly had something that gnawed at his heart that he put into a lot of these stories that we've talked about, and it was a huge through line. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that Lynn Carter and Elspreg de Camp didn't have that bone to pick with life. And so it's hard to follow through on the through line of a man's entire je ne sais quoi or gestalt or mm. line of work and and pick that up because you've got other threads. You've got other things to say. You've got other feelings about the world. Elspreg seemed to be all about like the mystical unknown portion. Like he loved Atlantis and all kinds of stuff, right? So... I think that kind of stuff is going to come through. Like you can't just force your philosophy and another person's philosophy together and produce the greatest story ever told. You got to be able to tell your own story. I have two questions. Okay. And one is longer. So I'm going to table it. <laughs> um, so uh, with Elsprig wasn't, didn't we discuss that he was in his heart kind of more of a sci-fi fan than a, than a sword and sorcery fan. Uh, I think we did get into a little bit of that. And the other thing that maybe we said this on the air then too, is, you know, he liked his, uh, confounding of real world and fantasy world. And Mm -hmm. he liked the historical, uh, couching of things. So he wasn't necessarily someone that was, 
at least from what I've read, going to plug things straight into a totally fantastic narrative. He had to anchor it. Uh, I mean, like I'm saying that based on reading the Goblin Tower and my familiarity with like his complete enchanter stuff, which is kind of like dude from one from the real world placed into a fantastic world, like uh, Donaldson style, like yeah, uh, fantasy narrative, C.S. Lewis style. Would you right? Say, yeah. Would you say that in comparison to Howard, he is civilized? Oh yeah, yeah, right. And I, I think you know from our discussions with 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 uh, yeah. Rusty, like he would whenever he does the his impression of <laughs> of Elspreg, I think I've said it. Like it's 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 almost as if he's like doing Christopher Lee, right? Like the, it, in my mind, like Christopher Lee and DeCamp are ever interchangeable in terms of like. A presentation that's probably totally wrong, but I just get that on the basis of how it seems that he communicated with like the Howard fandom, right? And that is a civilization versus barbarism argument. And, and Sprague was a highly educated person, right? He was a scientist, wasn't he? An engineer. Um, and I'm trying to relate this to the Lovecraft and Howard letters because I think. Karen's point about their exchanges about artist versus mm-hmm. workaday writer is is pretty fascinating. Yeah. And I can't help but think that that Howard was just not going to agree with Lovecraft just for the sake of, <laughs> of not agreeing with him. Yeah. yeah. It seems it seems that they just go back and forth and become so steadfast in their arguments that they're like like Howard is more willing to say agree to disagree mm-hmm. and Lovecraft becomes more obstinate and like he becomes even more highfalutin and and sort of like travels up and up and up with his arguments and makes even more grander sweeping statements with with uh like almost like the moral and and like universal truths reasonings <laughs> of their argument and and they can't reconcile uh but i do feel like how like howard is perpetually uh short selling himself and self-deprecating and very much wants to have the aura and the the persona of the workaday writer like Mm -hmm. he he likes that right like that's part of his identity he's he's the boxing writer like Mm -hmm. those those things and so part of that is him selling that idea, not just to himself, but to his peers. Yeah. I think that's interesting. And and Howard did go to college, right? Mm-hmm. Like he went to high school. He went to, to college in Brownwood, I believe we learned. Um, so it's, I don't want to give the impression that he's like, you know, uneducated and belligerent or anything like that. But I do get a sense in some the tone of some of his letters, uh, the few that I've read back and forth with Lovecraft that he just seems to want to argue for the sake of arguing yeah. with, with this guy. And if you look at Howard, he is, he is the mold for a Howardian uh, hero, right? Like he carved out his literary kingdom with his own two hands and his typewriter. And I could, uh, I, I don't think it would be a stretch to imagine him viewing Lovecraft as a new England elite from the city who has all of these, uh, advantages that maybe he himself did not have. So there's sure. tinges of that in, in Karen's article too, too. Like, uh, so 
I don't know. That is a that was a long winded read. I'll admit, and I I did read it in its entirety, but it's it's hard to just get past those two people exchanging letters back and forth with one another and not not given too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have to wonder, like, how much does the letter writing aspect of that play into their like like how that kind of correspondence plays out? Mm-hmm. I have to think that it's. In a lot of ways, it's really good, right? Like you don't have the, the hot like I'm I'm pissed off and I'm going to send a, an email or I'm going to flame somebody on Facebook kind of perspective. You've right. got like a week to sort of just digest things while letters are coming back and forth. But I don't know. It's really fascinating, and it does paint a picture of how Howard saw himself and how he saw himself apart from Lovecraft. Like like all of those angles, like how everybody saw one another. I think it's one of my favorite things about Howard, what we're talking about, because I, I would honestly say that I view myself as a humble country scientist. I often say <laughs> I'm, I'm but a country entomologist. Like I understand that feeling of I'm not you, like I'm not part of this establishment. Like I'm very yeah. different. I come at this from a very different angle. Mm-hmm. So I get what he's saying, but I also feel like you can't deny his, his talent. Yeah. And even if he is, I feel like we as people of a modern retrospective group should be able to say like, J- uh, John Clark, was that his name? Yeah. You're incorrect in your assessment of the situation. <laughs> so my question for that though, Josh, is, is is that like, like, do you have the, the full text for what he stated there? I don't have it. I just okay. have that part of the quote. Okay. I wonder like if he added any little caveats or whatever, because- I think we're all in agreement that that's hogwash. Like, like Howard himself, obviously, we have his own words, uh, you know, indistinct and sort of like, like butting heads against other statements of his. That he intended more with his writings. Yeah. So the dude wrote more than just blood and thunder for the sake of, you know, getting you in the loins. Yeah. But this oh, yeah. would be during a period where that wasn't readily apparent like that sort of scholarship delving into what howard had said about himself probably wasn't quite at the level that it is now oh absolutely we're talking about like 1950 okay um that's it's a few years before blood and thunder right (laughs) um so i i would say that yeah there's probably some folks who thought otherwise but i feel like th- that statement summarizes the the general sort of view of of howard's stories in more academic circles at the time okay second second question a little deeper a little more uh in the weeds we love the weeds the ethics of posthumous collaborations ooh if you are writing a story that is uh, that is you are collaborating with a dead person <laughs> and they have given you their part of the story and then they are dead, they have no agency. Right. So whatever the final product is, is entirely up to you, the living collaborator. Mm-hmm. So let's let's do some some thought experiments here. <laughs> let's say that. um you find an entire set of, of comics drawn by uh, Jack Kirby. And I get to write the words. And you in. get to write the words. That's tough. 
I would say I came at this, like I thought about this during our whole season, whenever we would have a posthumous collaboration type story, Mm -hmm. I thought about it as a scientist. Like imagine your graduate advisor left behind a data set and died. And then you get to write the paper or I don't, I don't like think what, what is our scientific equivalent of that? I, I guess like, that's you the find scientific. something Darwin had half written and then you finish it. So like you get to say like, yeah, Darwin and I wrote this together. Yeah. I guess if you find, you find your, your advisor's lab notebook, then uh, I don't know. There, there, there is something, there is an art to science writing. Right. So I don't know. I was thinking about like, uh, arguably the notorious B.I.G. died before he had a chance to really prove whether or not he was the greatest rapper of all time, <laughs> right? Right. And I'll take your word for it. <laughs> imagine you like imagine that someone at some recording studio finds a ten track demo that that Biggie recorded a week before he got shot and puff daddy takes that drops some beats onto it, adds some lyrics, does some things and releases it. Is is that right to do? Well, and I, it's not to like backtrack too much, but like you're a part about Kirby. I think that's very evocative as well. Like the idea of here's a whole comic and all I got to do is put in the words. Like I just have to interpret the drawings and maybe get a feel for what, this person was trying to convey. Yeah, it's kind of an outline. But it's still my interpretation of something somebody else created. Uh-huh. So it's... So who created it? Who created it? I, I think that's a very ethical question. So so who wrote The the God in the Bowl? Who wrote Next Summer Kiss? Next Summer Kiss, a good example, yeah. Because that one really did end just in it, an yeah, outline. It's got a great beginning right. and then just ends right. just, there's there's a paragraph that summarizes kind of how things might go you do it w- would i adapt it or or take my stab w- what at are it? your what are your thoughts like yeah um, so sh- is it was it is it right to uh t- for andrew j Offit to finish next summer cat so as a scientist and thinking about authorship the progenitor or the the initial idea, like I I'm a believer that that counts more than the actual, the than some of the actions, and so authorship can be measured on a variety of fronts. But coming up with the inkling of the idea counts as much, if not more, than any other metric when you determine who is first author of a publication. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of, we have, we have mechanisms in place for this. Like yeah. the order of authors is important yeah, as a right. scientist. So that's, that's my first statement. Second statement. This is me being more artsy. I do believe that once a piece of art is manufactured by an artist, that they lose authorship of it to some degree. So, once I paint a picture or write words and I share it with somebody, I'm attempting to elicit some level of like emotional response. And at that point it becomes a more like communal exchange. And at that point it's, it, I'm not going to say it's totally fair game, but I, I do, I do subscribe to the like 
Creative Commons, like, <laughs> like, like, so long as attributions included level of, of, of how this works, that so long as you're citing your sources, make use of it. Like, if I have let the, let the secret out of the bag or like sort of showed you a little snippet of, of what's in my journal or like exposed a part of my soul to you, then you can make use of it. And so, in the case of someone who's a workaday, pulp fiction writer like robert e howard to discover a trunk full of unwritten stories or any number of half-finished manuscripts i think it was moral for DeCamp and carter to do what they did i'll take well, counterpoint okay <laughs> yeah so i guess like what you said about once you make it and it's out there I buy into that. I'm a comic book reader. Jack Kirby and Stan Lee made Fantastic Four number 100. If I want to make Fantastic Four number 500, it's got to be somehow connected to number 100. Like, right. they made it, it. It was published. I get to react to it. I get to use it as part of what I'm making. I feel a little differently about finding a trunk full of stuff of a dead man's and saying, oh, he wrote half a story. I'm going to go ahead and... And it was it was never submitted It was anywhere. never put out there. Like, Next Summer Cat was not published. It was discovered and then finished. Mm-hmm. And I'm not faulting off it. I'm not faulting anybody that does that because I think that it's good to have some of this stuff come see the light of day and none of them have said, seemingly at least, like, this is my story. I did this. Right. It's, mm-hmm. I, I found or I was a part of the discovery of this and I'm going to finish it. Like that, they're very honest about their what they have. They're well, citing their sources. Offit, in particular, in the intro to uh, the anthology right. that Next Summercat is in, was was very much. Uh, you know, I did my best. Dear God, I hope I did right good right. enough. Like there, there's something to doing that. I uh-huh. think that makes it ethical. So I would not call these people unethical, but I do find it interesting. I guess that like so yep. many of these people. And not to keep dogging Elspray, particularly somebody <laughs> that says such negative things about an author, but continuously goes back to this salt mine for more and more material to tag his name on. Like that's that's interesting to me. That's a good point. And so I guess as a further level of distinction for sort of my argument, like if you it, in this case anything that Howard sent out, they got kicked back. Maybe that's more fair game than things okay. that he never even like sent out for the world because he thought this is not fit for anybody's eyes but mine because it's it's not truly the art like it's not art right like at that point like to the point that you share something that can kind of define what is art I think uh, and so if he wasn't willing to share it with anybody i.e. Like a journal, or or like Farnsworth never got for, a pass. Yeah, at it yeah, yet. nobody got a pass at it. Then, then maybe maybe that's of you know more ethical consideration. I guess not. I guess I I do feel like talking through this. That would be a a concrete division that I would establish between yeah. like the ethical like thumbs up versus eh sort of like waffling. It would, and I would say that it would be different if they, if Andrew J. Offit had done it and been like, "Oh yeah, by the way, this was half a Howard story." Mm-hmm. But like he was very upfront about it, like mm-hmm. you mentioned. I'm and, unaware of anybody though. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but anybody that has published like one of these Howard stories and said Howard second author, 
Like in all of these cases, it's Howard parentheses and Carter I'm, or something. I'm thinking about the the covers for some of the like like Conan of the Isles, some of those some of those uh, later mm-hmm. uh, the pastiches. Yeah, yeah. Um, whose names are bigger? I, and I don't know. I, I think don't know. I think they're the same. You think they're the same? I th- I, at least with like what I'm thinking about with like Conan of the Isles and like those. Like they, I think they are sort of side by siders. Okay, but and maybe that's disingenuous. Like even yeah, I, I, I'm, not to, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to say you're wrong. I just yeah. don't, I can't visualize. Yeah, I don't, I, like I don't actually know. There's a difference also between, hey, I'm Andrew J. Offit, and I love Sword and Sorcery, and I love Robert E. Howard, and I was offered this opportunity to take this story and finish it, mm-hmm. and I, I, I want to be in my hero's sandbox, and I want to finish one of his stories. Like this is, this is. This is a huge Gold. piece of candy for me. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm super psyched about it. That's a little different for me than Elspreg to camp being like, this guy was a chump, and but I'm going to go ahead and wear him like a skin suit. Well, and, I, I don't know. Like, like I don't want to take it too far, suit. but that skin suit is pretty far. I mean, well, I this is a person that disparaged this author multiple right. times. Sure. Yep, clearly thought of him as lesser than him. Said said uh, things to the extent of like. Uh, Lynn Carter and I can't write like Robert E. Howard because we're not crazy like right. Robert E. Howard. Right. Yeah. But definitely was all about, hey, this is working and I'm getting paid, so right. I'm going to keep doing it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. There To me, there are some degrees of ethical separation between that. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I, and and so, so, like, looking at, I just, you know, Googled, of course, like Conan Lancer, and you're seeing things like, uh, like the, the Conan. Oh, their font. Like the, 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 yeah, all, all of first. the font is equivocal, and Howard is first. Mm-hmm. But you read the intro by Sprague, and it's derogatory, and says caveat after caveat, and we clean things up. I had like, to clean this up. There's <laughs> there are clearly ethical yeah. statements to be made there, and it's like luke the scientist i'm i'm thinking about like to me the question of how you structure your introduction and the presentation of the work is a different argument than is the actual like authorship and presentation of the materials different too like one of those might be a damnable sin and one of those is permissible and they get like wrapped up in the same book i think that's something something to be said too mm-hmm. like i think the the adaptation and the the presentation of Howard's materials is permissible. And of course it's ethically strongest when there's a level of like straight up, like, like bending the knee <laughs> towards, yeah, yeah. towards like the, 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 the artistic abilities of the author on the front end. Mm-hmm. And the other end of things is, uh, disparaging remarks, which paint you in a brighter light, like that. Like those are the two extremes, and you can argue about where you stand there. But I think it's worth establishing the continuums. Just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I hope I'm no, I, I, meander- I think, Like that's a total academic way to. Like- <laughs> I think no. And, and let me let me add another wrinkle to this, uh, to this already complicated question. Uh, if you expand this out, uh, pastiches and posthumous collaborations are not unique to Robert E. Howard, right? Um, H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth 
is another example of uh, an author taking a deceased author's work and expanding upon it and changing it in, in a fundamental way. Um, with Derleth, he was very devoutly uh, religious. I want to say Catholic, but I'm not certain, but, yeah. but very religious. And, and yep. so added a, a very uh, good versus evil kind of dichotomy to some of the uh, pastiches of, of Lovecraft's work. Right. Or, or the, the things that Lovecraft influenced. And so the, the next question, I guess, is um, I don't know if it's methodology, if we want to keep it in to yeah. the, the scientific discussion, like Lovecraft's methods would have in, entailed a, a, a very atheistic kind of worldview, nihilistic worldview where humanity doesn't matter. And the cosmos is so vast, we can never understand it. And to try would drive you mad. Um, whereas Durlith might say, well, yeah, but that's just the evil stuff. Right. Right. And yeah. that, that right there, that wrinkle changes the entire intentionality of, of the body of work. Like the corpus is, is changed. Mm -hmm. I would agree. So is, is that ethical? So in the case of Durlith, to me, it's more of a uh, like a, a damnable offense. Like what he does with a lot of like Lovecraft's atheistic perspectives of the world. I I mean I don't necessarily know what notions a lot of the non Decamp non Carter adapters bring to the table, and there's a lot of baggage with like eighties fantasy and dungeons and dragons at that mm -hmm. point in time too but it is i think in the case of the the lovecraftian mythos really there's antithetical plots and and arguments and narratives that are construed uh post lovecraft like that that i think are that are are problems and I'm sure I am sure like saying that. And if anybody's listening, they're going to say, oh, well, the same thing stands for for Howard, too. They're screaming at their. Yeah, maybe I, I could see someone going, well, what about the the Elsprague stories where um, Conan uh, it calls upon Crom like uh, for aid as a prayer like that right there runs counter to the worldview that Howard established in uh, the, the Conan stories, right. And, and, and Conan's understanding of Crom and, and the, uh, the religious sort of aspect of the, uh, the people from Samaria. Sure. Sure. Th that perspective. Yeah. Sure. Um, it's, it's a tricky sort of thing. Very tricky. Yeah. And maybe we said this off mic before we started recording, but a lot of this is like arguments by degrees, like what makes things like, like things aren't dichotomous and they're not A's and B's. These are gradient sort of arguments. Mm -hmm. And I think the morality of, is this right or wrong? Uh, can come down to the, like, <laughs> I'm going to sound like such a sociologist. It's all about the context. Like what's the context <laughs> okay. of the writing? Like, <laughs> like what's the, what's the situ, the situational, 
uh, discourse that's going on. Discourse. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm getting all, I'm getting all big with my pants here. You're, you're getting all, <laughs> you're putting your, your Foucault pants on. That's right. Uh, but, but really, like, what is the, what's the story behind the story? That's the badass thing about, like, where we are in 2019, whether we're talking about Lovecraft or Howard, we have the, we have the privilege to be able to sort of like look back and think about those types of things as we interpret the writings. That's, that's really powerful. But, uh, I think if you're going to be throwing down your, your, your value judgments, if you're up on your, up on your cloud, like casting, judgment cloud. casting down, like that's, a, that's <laughs> a, it's always sunny sort of thing. Oh, I'm a cloud, just throwing down judgments. If you're going to be doing that, you got to have like some perspective. And I think mm. the, the grander sort of like publishing world is part of that. And how, like the, the degrees to which people were adapting other people's stuff, mm-hmm. I think is part of that discussion. I, I think it's a weird hardliner kind of kind of argument. Like, uh, are you a Howard purist? Okay, right. which Howard is is your pure Howard? Is the Phoenix on the Sword pure Howard because it's it's based on a draft of another story, but uh, with another character? Is that pure? I, I don't know. He he sold out, man. Like he did that. He did that because he wanted to sell a story. So is that pure Howard? Dude, I like it. Um, and I'm not trying to say that uh, Offit and Decant are wrong or bad, right? Or or right. This know, is a yeah. thing that happened, right? Like, how could we say, well, this should never have happened? Well, we can't. And it's not even a moral judgment anymore. I feel like we live in an adaptation world, right? Like <laughs> we do. That yeah. is, yeah. That is pop culture now. Is like. Oh, I can't wait for the next iteration of whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever is everybody's favorite obsession right now. Because the 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 IP has to be able to work and you're going to tell your version of a story that has something to say within that IP, that intellectual property. Like that's how things seemingly get done anymore. Uh, and I feel like some of this Howard stuff is a perfect example. We've talked about the adaptations of Queen and the Black Coast and Conan Comics and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you and I have talked about Roy Thomas. I mean, there are multiple Howard stories that he took and he turned into Conan Yard so they could be put into Conan the Barbarian or Savage Sword of Conan. So is that evil? Like, what is that? I mean, <laughs> you want to talk about like, uh, what's the, the right word for uh, where you are? You have some level of discord between like moral opinion A and like moral opinion B, you have like, like conflicting di- viewpoints. Dissonance or something. Yeah, yeah, cognitive dissonance. This is uh, an observation by Luke and not representative of the Chromecast. <laughs> dot dot dot. But it it strikes me, it, it just dumbfounds me that there can be quote unquote Howard purists that then get super duper up in arms about how. Uh, Howard is going to be portrayed in any level of media beyond the initial writing. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you even get upset about that if it's like apart what? from the, the 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 pure Howard? Like, what Amazon Prime is going to do with yeah, the Conan show or or, or how Becky Cloonan draws your your Conan right. or your Belit? Like, or or how I don't know somebody does a radio drama of 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 Solomon Kane. Like, that's just it, it's. It's interesting to me. I'm not saying that uh, that 
it's wrong, but something is going on there that allows like that conversation to go on in some person's head two ways. I feel like as a comic book fan, this is something that you have to reckon with frequently as well is like, I love reading the fantastic four, but am I reading the fantastic four that's being published right now by Dan slot and Sarah Pacelli or whoever's on art right now? Like, mm-hmm. Is Fantastic Four just whatever Jack Kirby or and Stan Lee came up with in the 60s? Mm-hmm. And then it's fan fiction from then on after they stopped working together because they came up with the nugget and right. published it. Like in comic books, you can't always make that kind of argument because otherwise there's nothing left. Like it's, it's all fan fiction. But now. at least that is the world of comics, though. Like that's the world that people that read comics are accustomed to, that that kind of like changing of the guard and changing hands can happen. It seems like there's resistance. I feel like to that's that pulled in out into the whole world, though. Like everything is that now. Everything is something to that effect. Like how many, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, how many iterations of certain TV shows have we gone through? I mean, but in the real world, people are super accepting of the fact that, like, contemporary Star Wars is not Lucas Star Wars, or that contemporary, uh, I don't know, Game of Thrones is not like George R.R. Martin. Like, there's, there's acceptance of that, uh, repackaging and adaptation. Like, that is how, as you said, like, IPs work in 2019. There's a resistance to that within within Howard. I mean, like, but, like, within our sort of fandoms, like, more generally, that's something yeah. that's there. Well, you know, there there's a lot of inertia in all properties to change, right? Like, just look at the receptance to The Last Jedi. Yeah. You know, whether you like it or or not, like that is that is the the Star Wars movie, right? right. Uh, That's what came out. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's the stuff I mean cuz you I mean you you pose this question as a posthumous thing. Like, professionally speaking, I guess George Lucas is posthumous, right? Like he ain't <laughs> as, far, making, as far as his creative he endeavors. He ain't making any more movies. Yeah, I don't think so. So, he's still alive. He gets to see what's happening. I, I have he to can't imagine stop it. Yeah. that has to be horrifying in some way. I, I assume that his $4 billion comforts him in some fact or whatever they like, got. He jumps like yeah. uh, Scrooge McDuck yeah. into his money bin. But it's it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough to watch what you created get co-opted by other people. And then they're going to tell stories with it. Um, I can't imagine that, I guess. And I don't know if it hurts to be like, well, that's not my intention. Because intention is only whatever people read into it. Like, we have our idea of what Howard's intention was, but Elsbrick did. Like, right, Carter yeah, did. Like, you're right. And they're creating stuff well, with Well, so, like, but to play off of that, all three of us are scientists. And we've, we've circled around, like, our views as scientists. Like, what happens when you publish a, a story or a study and it's become common in 2019 to have supplemental information being your data set, right? Like right. you, you, you are archiving and providing your data to the world and somebody comes around and Dude, reinterprets or, I or can speak from experience. With yeah, that. I mean, so, I published so, on pollinator stuff, pollinator decline stuff, and to have people take what I generated and take my numbers and lie with them. 
I mean, I lived through that. Like the, what I said in my publication was one thing, but they were very able to take what I published and spin their own story out of it. Like it's, it's a weird process to go through to be like, that isn't what I said at all. Please yep. keep my name out of your mouth. <laughs> it's, I, it's very strange. I can't say anything more than that, I guess. No. Uh, I didn't know where this conversation would go <laughs> when, when, when we pulled up to the, the, the studio. And I'm so glad that we got to uh, kind of dive into these. These these are some, some deep and heady topics. It is. And it's cool that, like, these are the things that happen now. And we keep coming around to, like, this is the kind of stuff we can talk about now in 2019. But these types of very now conversations and very immediate sort of back and forth uh, uh, exchanges. Like this isn't the kind of thing that would have happened in the thirties or the fifties or the seventies or eighties. Like a lot of this is a consequence of our like communication abilities and Mm -hmm. like people to make use of things like. Right. And if, if these conversations did happen, they happened in such a way in a format that no one else would ever have access to. Yep. I bet we're going to come back to this. I guarantee it. <laughs> I feel I like we're going yeah. This is For going sure. to be a thing. Yeah. This is a thing. This the is the road a, to ethics. ethics. <laughs> well, this, this is the thing. Like, Grand I, discourse. I feel like we're drilling down into an, an issue that we've kind of danced around in Howard studies. And I'm not going to, name it for fear of it showing up but like i I think at some point we're going to have a real honest heart to heart about things pertaining to issues that we've brought up tonight yeah man i think we talked about this in almost every episode this season like we talked about adaptation we talked about sequels and i mean this is something gatekeeping gatekeeping there was like a through line this whole season about what does it mean to revise something and how does that change the intent? And then what does it mean to adapt it, change it, make a sequel, turn it into a whole other character who owns it. Right. Like, right. like who has like sort of control over something. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. We're, we're hours in at this point. Yeah, capitulated. We're, we're deep. I, think, but <laughs> I do think capitulated. we capitulated pretty, pretty hard. We just capitulated all over the place. Okay. So we, talked about here's my 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 list of things we talked about what we're drinking we talked about our one things we hit on a whole lot of content yep the last thing i have here is a discussion of where we go from here so this is the last episode of the current season which is to say season nine we're heading into the the 10th season the aluminum season season x if you go by by wedding (laughs) chromecast x this is like that too (laughs) the the big x uh smells like cinnamon (laughs) <laughs> on the breeze. Only on the first instance. After that, you get a different smell every time. Yeah. Now it smells like bourbon. You're right. Ooh. I smell deodorant. The deodorant. Musk. The geriatric drug, which which gives you some some omniprescience and <laughs> and ability to to see things. And travel the stars. Travel the stars. Okay. So uh, for our next season, we're going to go towards Frank Herbert's Dune. Super excited about this. Everybody, we're uh, doing the, the road to Arrakis. No, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna bake you some tight tight cookies. Okay, <laughs> some spice cookies. We're gonna space trip. I'm gonna right, this I'm gonna bring you everything. some yeah. some some spice. So what do you call them? Snickerdoodles. Yeah, I'm gonna give Favorite you some sp- uh, next episode spiced up Snickerdoodles. 
so like they got cilantro in them? No, they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna have like cloves. A good old cookie, cigarette mm-hmm. cookie, cigarette cookie. <laughs> I did I did smoke for years and years. Did I you se- smoke clove cigarettes. I secondhand smoked for the same. Amount. <laughs> yeah. No, man, I was never I was never part and parcel of the cloves. I was a a camel a camel guy. Really? I yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Marlboros. If I was like borrowing off of my buddies in Arkansas, but. Okay. Uh, I've taken us way afield. It's here. okay. It's the road to Arrakis. We're talking about uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. It's our tenth season. It's going to be a, a different trip for sure on a lot of ways, but I think it's going to be uh, strikingly uh, similar and and I think it'll be of interest of our our audience. Yeah. So we're going to uh, map a course to the the desert planet. By talking about some of the pulps and the the serialized nature of the story, and uh, it's going to be pretty exciting. So, so uh, why Dune in like the 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 length of a tweet? Yeah, so Dune is like the big granddaddy of like soft SF, and I would argue again, Luke, and not the the Chromecast that like you can't look at Dune. Like, you can't look at, like, high fantasy and, like, Tolkien-esque stuff and not pull in some discussion of Dune. I, I think that the 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 DNA and the fingerprints of, of Dune are found within much of, like, contemporary fantasy. And on that alone, I think it's worth talking about. But on the basis of uh, SNS and Howard... There's a whole lot of pulpy goodness in there too. I'm I'm ex- like I'm going beyond my tweet, but it, it really yeah, you, you is. continued like, into it. This is a thread now. This is a, thread, a thread, but there is there's a lot to get into, man. And and it's like Dune is the same way that Star Wars is just a straight up like badass fantasy story. Like there's science fictional elements, but at its base, it's a it's a Campbellian monomythic like bonkers fantasy mm-hmm. monumentally influential yes and so next time we're suiting up we're taking some spice we're getting in our ornithopter and we're charting a course to the desert planet arrakis john do you have on your still suit sure it's gonna it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna recycle your your sweat and your pee and your poop oh, so that you can drink it so i already you'll... recycle those things dude yeah. okay well you gonna, need that it's gonna taste acrid acrid yeah you're going to stink a little bit, but you're going to need that. I put cloves in my urine, so it's not <laughs> great. Mm, cl- <laughs> spice. The spice must flow. Asparagus cloves. And so, yeah, we're going to walk without rhythm coming up next on the Chromecast. Until then, you can find us on the web at thechromecast.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at thechromecast. You can find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash thechromecast. You can call us 859-429-CROM, and you can DM us a uh, selfie on Instagram. We're at the Chromecast. Slip into our DMs. Keep it PG. No, no, no. <laughs> or, or, or send us some very earnest thoughts that we can talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know what you thought about the revisions, our, our thoughts about adaptations, uh, gatekeeping. Post best collaboration. Yeah. yeah. If you uh, want to call out one of us or all of us, feel free. Do We're it. Cool. Yeah. We'll have it. We'll entertain conversations on all fronts. Yeah. So we look forward to hearing from you. 
I know you're composing an angry tweet right now. <laughs> pull over if you're behind the wheel. Pull over. That's right. And then take the extra second and revise and and resubmit that stuff. Yeah, recapitulate. I said that stuff. That stuff. <laughs> you got to revise. If you have a moment to revise it, you got to you got to take that moment because the first draft is not your best draft. Dear the Chromecast. Close it out. Oh, I was waiting for you to finish. Sorry. Look, I don't have anything. You can oh, find I us. love us. <laughs> you can find us a little bit further down the road to Arrakis. Four winds bar.
All right, let's do it. Okay, hold on. Boot it. Starting at one fifteen. Booty boots. Because somebody was being loud. Not the episode. That's it. Yeah. Uh, next time, Dune. <laughs>